And this is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for True Talk. And uh, this is your host, Ahmed Badir. My co-host, Samar, will be joining us later uh, in the program. This last week, there was a series of op-eds um, in major newspapers that many people classified or saw as Islamophobic as it relates to the um, ongoing war and genocide that's happening in Gaza. Uh, the Wall Street Journal published an op-ed by Stephen Stilinski titled, uh, quote, Welcome to Dearborn, America's Jihad Capital. And um, there is another publication that was also in the New York Times uh, that also by Thomas Friedman, uh, the um, an op-ed that kind of looked at the Middle East countries um, from the angle or the story of the animal kingdom, which uh, people also saw as insensitive and uh, biased and discriminatory, caused a lot of outrage in the Muslim community. Um, President Joe Biden was actually traveling and trying to campaign in Michigan, where he was desperately trying to meet with Muslim and Arab leaders to be able to sway them um, and, and gain their support, especially that there's so many that are now saying that they're not going to support um, Biden in the upcoming election because of his stance on Gaza. To help us unpack that, um, we're going to be joined, we're joined by Dr. Maha Hilal, She's the author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, um, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience. And she wrote an op-ed in the Daily Beast titled, How Biden Can Really Support Dearborn's Muslim Community. Uh, welcome to True Talk. Uh, thank you, Ahmed, for having me. So, um, first, what, what's the context and why did you choose to write this op-ed? Um, you know, this piece was a long time coming because over the last couple months there have been, you know, uh, multiple hate crimes as well as um, rhetorical violence and hate that has been circulated in the media as well as by President Biden himself. Um, and so for Biden to release yet another disingenuous statement talking about condemning hate and Islamophobia was really a slap in the face again, because we know he's part of the apparatus, of course, that is perpetuating the hate and directly supporting Israel's genocide of the Palestinians. Um, to me, this is uh, a, another layer of violence. It's symbolic violence. Um, and I think that um, it's just a slap in the face. I mean, it, you, you can't condemn Islamophobia, anti-Arab racism, and anti-Palestinian racism, which he didn't even do that part, um, while at the same time supporting a genocide of the Palestinian people. It just doesn't make sense. And it's probably better if he just stays silent at this point. Right. When you're saying his words, uh, what do you mean? Are you referring to his tweet, right? Yes. So, well, What was uh, the tweet to provide some context to our uh, viewers and listeners? Um, let me see if I can pull it up, actually, where he says here, the tweet says, oh, let me put up the exact. yeah, America's, well, I found it. America's, Americans know that blaming uh, a group of people based on the words of a small few is wrong. That's exactly what can lead to Islamophobia and anti-Arab hate. And it shouldn't happen to the residents of Dearborn or any American town. We must continue to condemn hate in all forms. So he was basically, while not directly mentioning uh, the Wall Street Journal op-ed where, you know, they say this is, uh, Dearborn is 
jihad capital. He's, that's what he's referring to, uh, uh, that specific. And he, why do you think that that's empty words? Uh, I'm not sure exactly how Americans know this, that um, collective responsibility and collective punishment is um, wrong, because that's exactly what the United States government has continued to practice time and time again. And um, Israel's genocide of the Palestinians is exactly that collective punishment, um, which he supporting, which is supporting, which on terror has long operated on the basis of. So do I believe Americans know that? No. Americans uh, probably believe that collective punishment is a reasonable response because that's what the United States has been doing since its founding and in the last 20 plus years of the war on terror and now in supporting Israel's genocide. Um, and, you know, the thing is, like, when I first saw this tweet, I wasn't sure what exactly it was referring to. Mm -hmm. um, because he has made statements like this over the past couple months and even before. Um, but it was because I received an email from the White House Muslim Community Liaison, Mezen Basali, yeah. that I was aware that this was re in response to specifically the Wall Street Journal piece. So uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, you must be on some sort of email list or that we that, that you received some communication. So the White House has some sort of liaison that does outreach to Muslims. Uh, how long has that been there? What's that? What's the purpose of that role? Um, you know, this role was resumed in April of 2023. And, you know, a lot of Muslims and Muslim organizations celebrated the role um, because Donald Trump had previously eliminated it. Uh, but, you know, like many of these sort of positions or like Muslims, a lot of times working in the government more generally, right? Um, the position is not actually about uh, restoring rights or actually advocating for Muslims to have rights. It's actually just rubber stamping bad policies and horrible rhetoric. And um, in this case, you know, I've received, because I signed up for this list, multiple emails in which Mazen Basrawi is con uh, communicating statements and tweets from the president on various issues, um, and oftentimes very enthusiastically, as if we should be you know, happy that he, for example, in this case, was speaking to the vitriol in the Wall Street Journal piece while at the same time supporting a genocide. So, I mean, it, to me, it's a very insulting and, you know, communicates that they think that the Muslim community, at least some of us, right, that are receiving these emails have really no wherewithal, as I wrote in the piece, to discern what's actually happening and what is actually causing this hate and bigotry and backlash of the Palestinian Arab and Muslim communities. Um, there was this, uh, you know, the mayor of Dearborn had been uh, saying, and, and the, the uh, campaign manager of Biden for president had reached out and they were trying to set some sort of meeting. And he turned down the meeting because he thought that um, this is not the time to talk about uh, elections and politics when there's an ongoing genocide. And um, but he may, you know, because he saw it as a way that they're just trying to win over support without necessarily calling for a ceasefire or stopping. And, and he thought that that's um, not acceptable. Is that the sentiments you're hearing out of Michigan and, and throughout the Muslim community? How are they responding in general to what Joe Biden is uh, saying on one hand, but, you know, providing this cover for Israel's war in Gaza? I mean, I think, you know, generally speaking, right, um, politicians are disingenuous 
and um, any effort to sort of like cater to the Muslim and, and Palestinian Arab community, you know, has never really been done with any, you know, genuine desire to change the status quo. I mean, we can go back in history. I mean, when Biden was first running for president, mm -hmm. he didn't disavow any of the horrible policies that he helped to promote and perpetuate under the Obama administration. Like what? Oh, like drone warfare, you know, like immigration policies, um, like what was happening, whatever support was provided to Israel at, at you know during the administration. So, the fact that Muslims let him off the hook and really didn't seem to question him about his prior policies because he came in saying, you know, he's going to do better than Trump, he's going to get rid of the Muslim ban, all of these things, um, I think gave him a leg up and made Muslims and you know Arabs believe that he was somehow going to represent something different. Um, so now, of course, now that he's supporting a genocide, um, you know, it just comes down to like, what do they think about the Palestinian Muslim and Arab communities? Um, and, you know, if I'm to be totally honest, I, I think it, it really is about like how much uh, respect and dignity do our communities have for ourselves to participate in a system that is continually demonizing and dehumanizing us. And to know that the Biden campaign is only interested in votes. Okay? And even if, you know, we were able to, you know, put enough pressure for him to call for a permanent ceasefire, and he's doing that for the sake of votes, that's still dehumanizing because he doesn't actually care about the people mm. themselves. He only cares about the vote. And so, you know, I fully support all of these efforts to, you know, kind of ostracize Biden, to marginalize Biden and, and call on him to do something differently. I mean, I don't know that there's a way to rectify this. I mean, even a permanent ceasefire, fine, that's much needed and has to happen to protect Palestinians. But at the same time, I mean, now we're close to 30,000 Palestinians who've been killed. How can that damage be undone? And how can our community forget about that? I mean, uh, one of the things that you um, mentioned that, uh, and, and it's obvious that Biden's response on Twitter to this op-ed was very Swiss. I mean, I'm sorry, very swift. What? Why do you think that he, the White House, took this so seriously? And you know, they swiftly condemned or tried to speak out against it. Um, I, I honestly think they just think the Muslim community. Um, Palestinian Arab community are just stupid and they don't really know what's going on and they're not going to make a connection between what's happening domestically and what's happening in Palestine um, and maybe this has worked before and I mean presumably to some extent right with some Muslim Arab Palestinian communities it has worked because why else would he keep resorting to this tactic um, but I don't see the. I really don't see the point whatsoever. And I mean, think, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that? I mean, it seems like they're very. They're a little bit. They're maybe very worried about the outcome of the election because he's dropping in poll numbers. Um, but instead of recognizing that the problem is his position on Gaza, uh, looking for other ways to try to find solutions and blame it on other things. It's. Uh, it seems like it's. It's a no-brainer. Just 
act on Gaza, stop the genocide, and maybe your poll numbers will go up. But he's standing by what's happening there, uh, which which is very troubling. Are you finding that some voices, uh, even though there may be a few, um, within the Muslim community or Arab community, maybe they're reassuring Biden that things will be okay in November and keep going? I mean, I remember I said... I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody tweeted that uh, Biden can somehow rectify this by showing more empathy. Um, you know, uh, there was a tweet circulating on Twitter and it was somebody that's Muslim. Do you think that he's getting his isolator, the type of Muslims he's actually engaging or talking to are telling him that things will be OK? Or maybe it's Muslim leaders uh, of different countries in the Middle East that privately are supporting what's happening in Gaza, but not doing those so not doing so publicly. So do you feel like there are those elements within the Muslim community that are providing some sort of assurances to the Biden administration? I mean, I'm not sure how they could legitimately provide assurances, um, given that um, the outrage um, and, you know, distrust has, has been pretty vocal at this point. Um, I think insofar as even engaging, I, I think the only sign of that would be that they're continuing to engage with him and his administration. Um, I know that there are and have been White House listening sessions on Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as if that is going to solve the problem and also as if, you know, they don't know what the problem is. They don't know what the source of the problem is. They can't just do some research, right? So, I mean... I, I would say it, was, it would be disingenuous if anyone's trying to convince him that um, there, this can be rectified just by calling for a permanent ceasefire, which even that obviously is, is proving to be extremely difficult for him. Um, but if, if any sort of engagement, um, because there has continued to be engagement with the Biden administration, I mean, that, that to me would be the only sign that um, there was any hope for his campaign. Uh, your your uh, op-ed, which was in the Daily Beast, again, the title of it is um, How Biden Can Really Support Dearborn's Muslim Community. And you draw the connection between state violence, individual acts of hate and violence, uh, hate crimes on Muslims here in America. Uh, could you explain how this dynamic contributes to the uh, uh, you know, the ongoing uh, of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this since the war on terror, right? And obviously all periods in American history that basically when the state is targeting a group of people, it gives uh, society a license to target the same group similarly. And what you come to learn, of course, is that there is no accountability for state violence. No one is ever held accountable, right? Uh, for state violence. And so what does society absorb and learn from that? Again, that it's okay to target different groups of people, particularly when they've been um, so completely and utterly dehumanized and demonized. So, I mean, that's the connection. And I think, you know, the way that I conceptualize Biden's response to hateful rhetoric or hate crimes is that basically he loves to hate hate. So he in other loves words, to hate, hate. What does that mean? He loves to hate hate, which is to say that he loves to condemn hate because hate is a sort of interpersonal societal problem, right? You don't attribute hate to the state. 
So he loves to hate hate because that gives him an opportunity to pretend as though he cares about Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim communities through these sort of um, shallow symbolic statements while at the same time supporting, condoning, and perpetuating state violence against these very same communities. So in fact, these hate crimes and this hateful rhetoric gives him an opportunity again to speak out against the system of oppression that he is in turn actually using to perpetuate institutional violence. So you're saying like these, uh, the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, the um, drone and the war on terror in general uh, that's been going on since 9-11 and the demonizing of Muslims abroad um, has somehow institutionalized this back at home where it's okay to somehow attack these people that whereas with other communities that's unacceptable they can get away with it when targeting the muslims because people kind of feel like these are the bad guys yeah i mean i think there a lot of communities are targeted you know it's just mm-hmm. it, it takes different shapes and forms so there's just a different facet in terms of how are muslims being targeted and also given that you know muslims are very heterogeneous community. So we have all these intersectional identities um, that, you know, it's not always clear why a Muslim who might be black, right, or Muslim Arab, like, are they being targeted because of both one or the other? Um, but, ne- you know, nevertheless, um, the the way that the media has shown up um, during the genocide of the Palestinians and other um, sort of periods of times where there's been foreign policy that's been extremely horrible or acute state violence in whatever other shape, right? Um, The media has really colluded with the government um, and often taken it a step further to introduce, reintroduce and perpetuate language that dehumanizes the community, which then serves as a way for the state to justify its violence against them. I'm speaking with Dr. Maha Hilal. She is the uh, author of a book called In, uh, Author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, The War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience Since 9-11. She's also, her PhD is in Justice, Law, and Society. My, my co-host Summer is actually joining us now, and she has a question for you. Uh, good morning, uh, Maha. It's an honor to talk to you. I love the piece, actually, that uh, you wrote. Very, very interesting. And I wish for our listeners that they would go uh, and read it. I want to ask you about your book in a minute. But um, I know in your article that was just published, you mentioned the Wall Street Journal and their um, title of Dearborn. But they also had another article that said, Uh, I think Chicago votes for Hamas. And this is very, uh, very annoying and very limiting because I don't want to talk about how I look at uh, resistance movements or about Islamic resistance movements or about people's rights to defend themselves. I just want to vote for the uh, ceasefire because I want uh, Palestinian children, Palestinian mothers, Palestinian men to uh, be alive and to have education and to have food and shelter. 
And then there is another article maybe published by the New York Times, and let me just look at it by Thomas Friedman. And he says, and I am quoting, understanding the Middle East through the animal kingdom. Okay, and he says uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is a wasp. Uh, we have no counter strategy that safely and effectively kills the, the wasp, sorry, without setting fire to the whole jungle. I mean, can they use these words about other groups other than Muslims and Arabs and Palestinians in your study of hate and your study of Muslims and your study of m media? I mean, why, why is this allowed? Why can't we, I mean, no matter how much we contact these people and tell them, they just don't listen to us. And right. what are the consequences? Like, <laughs> this is crazy right. to be happening now. I mean, I think it's a, you know, obviously a multi-layered problem. Um, you know, and the Muslim community, Palestinian community, of course, that, you know, we should always center. Uh, and the Arab community, I mean, they, they continue to be dehumanized. Um, there's a particular way that they're dehumanized, but I mean, generally speaking, most of the communities in this country who are not white are continue to be dehumanized. I think sometimes we see it show up more egregiously in, in place, some places more than others. Obviously with the media, what we have um, in particular around uh, it, you know issues impacting Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims is that, you know, these dehumanizing narratives are specifically used to perpetuate um, a particular type of foreign policy that is based on brute force and um, violence and war. So it serves a particular purpose. Um, you know, I, I think that this has been part of the trajectory. I mean, media has never been friendly to Arabs and Muslims. Um, and, you know, whether it's just like outright racist headlines like what we're seeing in Wall Street Journal or, you know, more subtle things about, for example, you know, when um, Israelis are killed, we will talk about Israeli women, children, um, families, whereas when Palestinians are killed, uh, they're Palestinians, civilians who died. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge distinction, right, in how these two things are being uh, presented. And so there's all these different layers. There's like the overt and um, express racism, and then there's the other sort of more nuanced racism, I mean, depending on who it is that's looking. But also then there is the question of political power and how much power do these communities have to push back, right? And, you know, what are the repercussions for Wall Street Journal publishing such a piece, right? Or the other piece about um, voting for Hamas, right? What are the repercussions? And at this point, right, there seems to be none because the pieces have not been retracted. Um, and as far as I know, there hasn't been any statement from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I think we have to build power. I don't think it's a situation, you know, a lot of Muslims in my work, right, have, have defaulted to sort of blaming the Muslim community for not intervening in these media narratives, which ignores a huge power differential. It's not as if we can just come in one day to a media newsroom and change the course of the coverage. So, so it requires that. So are you saying that the young Muslims are blaming us, the older generation? No, it's not necessarily about an intergenerational or age. It's about just some Muslims in general. Okay, um, but 
but if you if you pay attention to the young American generation, whether um, I mean non-Muslim, non-Arab background, but also uh, Christian or Jewish, the young generation is uh, is not paying attention to these uh, mainstream media. I mean, they know what they're writing, for instance, because they criticize it. But luckily, they 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 have access to information coming right out of Gaza. Do you think that this maybe now today we cannot see the influence of this on foreign policy? But do you think maybe in a, in ten or twenty years things can be different? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, as you're saying, you know, there are various different platforms through which you know younger people and just people in general have been able to access alternative sources of media and news. And I think that does help a lot. Um, of course, there is still a power differential and there is still the element of, you know, tech companies expressly and overtly, right, um, restricting and pushing back against, for example, Palestinian voices that are reporting from Gaza, right? Um, so there are still a lot of issues in um, shifting that power balance. But I mean, I think there has been a lot of shifts and I think it's, you know, people also need to seek that out, right? Um, because American culture is a culture of ignorance and it's not just casual ignorance, it's institutional ignorance. It's ignorance that's designed, it's a, it particularly designed by the government to instill ignorance, to encourage ignorance. So, and, it, and that ignorance is used to oppress people. So it also requires people to take that extra step if they can, can you, act. Yeah. Can you explain that? Because some listeners might not understand actually two things. When you say tech companies have pushback, like in detail, what do they really do to the Palestinian accounts? And second, what do you mean by this ignorance that is really kind of designed by the government? Sure. So, you know, whether it's at Facebook or Instagram, you know, or TikTok, you know, people have been shadow banned, which means that their content doesn't show up for their followers, um, which results in far less views. Right. And so when you're getting fewer views, then you don't get more views. So any content that's coming out of Palestine or talks about certain social justice issues is being curbed that way. So the exposure is a lot less. And then people's accounts are just being banned. And so people have been creative using different ways of spelling words, for example, to get around the checks that are in place to kind of um, restrict and censor that context. So that's one part of the problem, right? So we think of a lot of times social media spaces as more democratic spaces. But obviously, that's just not the case because these tech companies are intervening in a heavy-handed way because they can, because they're private companies. And so they can also do a lot to restrict and censor the content that is allowed or can actually right, um, be shown and made visible and, and change people's minds. Now, in terms of ignorance, um, you know, I think one of the things that I remember after 9-11 um, is that Bush basically told people, um, you know, to go shopping and to, you know, participate in the, you know, consumerism, right? And um, that was a very shocking response, right? Um, I mean, not that his other response was any better, but it's the idea that we want, we're investing in people's ignorance and apathy, because when you do that, the state has much more of a license to inflict violence because people aren't going to be critical 
of the violence that it's inflicting. So it's in their best interest. And, you know, there is this whole theory of the epistemology of ignorance, and it's really about this ignorance as a system of oppression Mm -hmm. that is by design because you can get a lot further, right, in control and manipulation of people if they're ignorant. And if you instill within them, right, the idea that you should not be critical, that you should trust your government. And I think people are, you know, increasingly obviously critical of that. But there's a whole segment of American society that is extremely ignorant. And I think, you know, we can point to many different periods of time where that has been acutely revealed. I I can't believe that after uh, 20 years since uh, September 11 or so, we're still using the word jihad uh, and taking for granted that people really think it's a violent thing and they don't understand the meaning of it. After all, what we have been doing, you and I and Ahmed and so many Muslims uh, out there lecturing and teaching and writing, (laughs) they still use the same uh, key words to trigger uh, fear. I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Maha Hilal, about your book, Innocent Until Proven Muslim. I have not read it, and I usually I love to read books before I ask about them. But in a nutshell, can you tell us what is your book uh, about? Yeah, so the book covers about two decades of the war on terror, and it does this in three parts. One is through the narrative infrastructure of the war on terror. The second is through the laws and policies that were implemented post 9-11 under the guise of the war on terror. And then the third is um, Muslim experiences in the war on terror, but it's divided into um, looking, examining internalized Islamophobia, um, Muslim organizational responses uh, to state violence and violence perpetrated by Muslims, and then um, Muslim experiences. There's about 11 um, sort of stories of Muslims from various walks of life. Um, and, you know, I will say to your, your previous point about, um, you know, the proliferation and the continued use of words like jihad mm-hmm. to mean a violent struggle. I mean, in a lot of ways, the question is like rhetorical. Some people say like, why don't Muslims condemn, you know, violence or acts of terrorism? It's not a really, it's not a sincere, genuine question. It's, a, it's sort of a rhetorical question because they don't want to know the answer. And I don't think Muslims should have to condemn um, acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims anyway, but when people ask that, it's not actually asked with the desire to learn uh, that Muslims have done that. So, I mean, I think it's, again, it comes back to instilling ignorance, but also people don't want to change and they don't want to learn. So, I mean, there's a point at which you have to shift your strategy, right? So that's why, you know, a lot of Muslims might think that, you know, having a bake sale at their kids' elementary school or bringing cupcakes or whatever is going to change people's minds. Um, But that can't really do that much when there's an entire structure of dehumanization and demonization that requires, you know, among other things, dismantling white supremacy and intervening with strategies that are specifically rooted in anti-oppression. Not this like, oh, if you get to know us, you'll like us. That just is not you know, there's a lot of spaces and places that that's just not going to work. And so I think also, you know, sometimes it's about understanding what's at the root of the problem. Um, as we wrap up with uh, Dr. Maha Hilal, and um, as we mentioned, she's the author of Innocent Until Proven Muslim, Islamophobia, the War on Terror, and the Muslim Experience 
since 9-11. She also uh, this last week wrote the op-ed, How Biden Can Really Support Dearborn's Muslim Community. And as you make a connection between uh, state violence abroad and um, anti-Muslim violence that's happening here in the United States, well, what real policy recommendations or changes do you actually recommend for Biden to do and administration to uh, switch, you know, change course or win the support of people or make things better for Muslim Americans? Well, I mean, obviously a permanent ceasefire um, needs to happen. And I think, I mean, there are a lot of things, right? Um, restoring funding to UNRWA, for example, right? Um, which there's also a whole narrative infrastructure that's a problem there because of the ways that, you know, the genocide in is of the Palestinians continues to be talked about as a humanitarian crisis, as if no one knows where that came from and mm. who's responsible. So there's also a lot of uh, rhetorical structures and narrative structures that need to be fundamentally disrupted and, and uprooted. Um, then in general, I mean, Biden hasn't really diverged at all from the war on terror, the infrastructure of the war on terror, right? Um, he's still waging war on, I mean, he just striked, right? <laughs> Iraq and Syria. Um, and then there was the Houthis in Yemen, right? So. He's basically just continuing the same policies over and over and over again. And, you know, it's hard to even answer that question of what should he do to get the Muslim voter or the Arab vote? Because to me, if that's the reason why you're making a change, you're still dehumanizing the community because all you want is their vote. You don't actually care about them. And I'm under no pretense that Biden cares about any of our communities. But I mean, a way to begin a discussion if you're you're genuinely caring about a community, which obviously he just does not, period. So uh, what call to action um, do you have for, um, for our listeners, for our viewers? Uh, what can they do, especially to support Muslim American community, uh, Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans? Uh, what can they do, people that are frustrated with what they're seeing overseas and How can they get? How can they do something about it? Uh, well, first, I would say follow the guidance of Palestinian-led and centered organizations. So, you know, U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, Adela Justice Project. Um, you know, there's numerous others, Hamla, um, that Adlamir. You know, all these organizations that um, people should be following and really uplifting Palestinian voices and following their lead. Um, I think also just continuing to call for a permanent ceasefire, obviously, um, an end to Israel's genocide, um, and insisting on calling what Israel is doing a genocide outside of whatever court decides that it is or is not. Um, and then I think, you know, just generally really making sure that when we talk about, um, you know, the forthcoming elections, for example, we're not blaming the people who don't want to vote for genocide Joe or and a president who has supported this level of violence, right? We need to have nuanced discussions. We need to understand why people have the opinions and perspectives they do. And we need to put the pressure. I think the mayor of Dearborn said it beautifully in an interview with Abby Phillips, right? The question should not be back on the community. The question is how is the administration going to change course? Mm. 
Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you again for joining us, um, uh, Dr. Mahilal, and for Thank your you. time. We hope to have you back on in the near future. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, uh, Summer, great discussion with uh, Dr. Maha Hilal. And I'm glad to see that, um, you know, you're able to participate. Summer, a lot is happening. And any moment, you know, we're actually, even though this is being uh, broadcast on Twitter on Thursday um, at noon, however, this conversation uh, was recorded earlier uh, with uh, Dr. Mahilal and our conversation now. Um, it was actually recorded on 12 o'clock on Wednesday. The reason I say that, Samar, is because at any moment there could be an announcement of a truce or a ceasefire. We don't know exactly mm -hmm. uh, how that's going to turn out, but if you, uh, you know, the news reports um, coming out of Al Jazeera is that you know, there's this back and forth negotiations happening and Hamas, who was the last one to respond to a proposal uh, presented by Egypt, Qatar, and the U.S. is somehow also involved. They responded back with a three-stage Gaza ceasefire plan that happens over a period of three, uh, three phases, each period, I believe, 45 days each and you know, when they meet that, then they go to the next phase. Uh, is that your understanding? Yes, uh, I think, Ahmed, and I'm going to read here just to be uh, accurate. Uh, they will, uh, like you said, three-stage uh, uh, ceasefire that will uh, be, like if you calculated, 135 days each. Uh, each one is 45 uh, days. In the first stage, and I'm reading here, uh, Israeli forces would, would retreat from Gaza's residential areas. In the next phase, the Israeli military would leave Gaza altogether, uh, a demand that Israeli officials have publicly rejected. And during the first two phases, Hamas would release Israeli and foreign nationals held hostage in the Gaza Strip, while Israel would release some of the more than 8,000 Palestinians in prisons in its jails. It's important to mention many of these prisoners were never put on trial. They have no idea why they are, are arrested, why they are serving uh, sentences. But uh, And during the third uh, phase, both Israel and Hamas would swap dead bodies held uh, in their uh, custody. Uh, roughly 100 living hostages remain in uh, Gaza and uh, what else? In the first phase, uh, Hamas is demanding the release of uh, all Palestinian women, children and elderly and sick prisoners. There are several uh, prisoners who have cancer and are uh, dying. And in exchange, Hamas would release all of the hostages in those same uh, categories, categories, except for soldiers. Yeah, uh, they were not going to release is... supposedly the, the female soldiers. That will be a different kind of uh, potentially exchange. But the idea that they would withdraw from residential neighborhoods and our listeners and viewers may uh, find this interesting that, you know, well, why is Ham why is the Israeli uh, army in residential neighborhoods to begin with? if they're supposed to be fighting against Hamas and um, they're 
what's become clear is they're actually detonating and destroying a lot of residential communities, residential towers. Uh, They're creating what they're saying, buffer zones. Imagine they're just going inside Gaza and just destroying complete neighborhoods where thousands of people lived, uh, roads. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of pictures of before and after in Gaza, um, whether it's, you know, neighborhoods and uh, streets, boulevards. They're physically going in there with yep. bulldozers and just, just they're turning it back into uh, the Stone Age. There's absolutely nothing left in many of these communities, many of these neighborhoods. So even if people want to return to something, they're not able to return. There's nothing to live in. And now they've pushed them uh, as far south as a place called Rafah. Rafah is the crossing border. It's basically... There's no, not, nowhere else to go, up against the wall, up against the fence. And now they, and this was supposed to be the last safe area to be at. People are sleeping in tents there. And now they're actually bombing and attacking in Rafah uh, at the border. And it's just uh, so despicable. And it's just happening. And- I don't know if they're just, they know that ceasefire is about to happen. And they're just trying to cause as much destruction right before the end so they can uh, achieve whatever and aims that they have. Some in the Arab world, Ahmed, believe that uh, Israel will try to push the Palestinians who are in Rafah and force them to go to the Sinai, where they will uh, live there as refugees and will never be allowed to return back. Egyptians fear that all the time. If you go on Twitter, you will find uh, right. People talk about that and they say we love the Palestinians, they should stay on their land, we don't want them to come to the Sinai. It's not like the Sinai has any facilities that can... It's desert. It's a desert. It's un, it's just no man's land almost. But there is a development I want to read to you, mm-hmm. uh, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, the Saudi foreign ministry issued uh, a letter or a statement. And right. Quoting here, we will not establish diplomatic relations with Israel without recognizing the independent Palestinian state and ending the Israeli aggression on Gaza. And on one other uh, note, it says, um, I'm sorry, uh, on other note, it says, uh, and East Jerusalem, the capital. So it contradicts completely what um, Netanyahu says. Or what the White House is hoping to achieve, which is their their trophy uh, in this administration, is to the normalization have normalization and have diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and um, and uh, Israel. But this uh, is really uh, this. But, okay, I saw that statement. I saw that statement. I wasn't sure what to make of it. If they're being honest or they're just trying to quell uh, growing anger within the um within their own country and throughout the middle east because you know there are all these accusations of that the uae uh, saudi arabia and jordan are helping the israelis evade uh the um you know the closure of the suez canal because of well it's not closed but the houthis attacks on ships there and they created something called the land bridge and what happens is the ships are docking in the uae these are ships destined to israel for deliveries, they're docking at the UAE ports, then they're moving the loads, um, the merchandise onto trucks that travel through the UAE into Saudi, into Jordan, and then make it to Israel. This is also they can cut cost 
of having ships to go all the way, uh, you know, around Africa, which is costing millions of dollars more in shipping costs and huge delays. So there are all these accusations. So I don't know. Are do you? And it, one part of that statement, I think that uh, also said that to recognize the Palestinian state, and they urged the five member states, uh, veto states within the UN Security Council to recognize Palestine uh, along the 1967 borders with Israel being, you know, with the Jerusalem, East Jerusalem being the capital. Mm -hmm. So this is a really strong statement. They put it in writing. So I wasn't sure what to make of it. Are they really serious about it? Is that what's really going to happen? Because in the past, they've said, uh, they've said statements like, where Palestine is a pathway to a Palestinian state. But this is very definitive, their statement today. Yes, and they put it in English and in Arabic, so there is no anything lost in translation. It's very difficult, Ahmed, these days to make a sense of what is going on because development is developing faster than we can process it. Uh, every hour you have something different happens. For instance, yesterday, uh, or when was it on uh, on Tuesday, they, mm -hmm. uh, they stopped the aid uh, bill uh, to Israel. So this can be seen as something that the, uh, the the Congress is doing or the administration is doing to, to doing to twist the arm of Netanyahu, or is it something that has to do no, with I think the internal politics of the U.S. and giving aid to Ukraine and giving aid to Israel and the border and all that? So every issue can be looked at from any angle you would like to look uh, at it, and um, then about the aid, about the uh, U.S. I mean, it's you know now it's. 120 days or more. how many days has it been? It's, I think, uh, four months, over four months. And surprisingly, the United States, because of its dysfunctional Congress, has been unable to deliver an aid package to Israel. I'm, you know, I'm a believer in God. I believe in that there's some sort of divine intervention that's happening here or some sort of karma where... Uh, the Congress, which is, uh, you know, united in, in their support for Israel, cannot deliver an aid package there because of internal conflicts. And um, surprising, you know, there is all these articles today about how people are so frustrated, especially in the Republican side, that they could not get a uh, package to Israel, even though they all want to, uh, because of the, you know, internal politics they and how the bill is tied to Ukraine and the border, et cetera. So I don't think it's because uh, they want to twist Israel's arm. It's because of other dynamics that are happening as they also tried to impeach the Homeland Secretary and they were not able to. I mean, imagine uh, the gridlock that it, the vote came down 215 versus 215 and they could not move it forward. Um, so a lot is happening there. Um, some are, there's, you know, uh, Al Jazeera is also reporting, I mean, everybody's reporting that uh, Rashida Tlaib is, who tweeted before that Netanyahu is a genocidal maniac, um, you know, somebody tweeted that, you know, Rashida speaking on the House floor said that, and they're trying to make it out like, you know, well, this is something bad. And Rashida responded and said, in her tweet back said, uh, yes, I said what I said, and she's doubling down saying that, yeah, he is a genocidal maniac. And how else would you describe him? I mean, he's committing genocide. 
I mean, and he's they, saying he does not believe in the Palestinian state. Uh, animal, uh, human animals. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, why? Why they can say like I keep people keep asking me what does it mean in English when you are a human animal? I'm trying to figure out. I really don't know what's a human animal. No, this uh, is something that's exclusive. Like scientifically to, speaking. Uh, instead of just saying instead of the animals, they they say they're human animals. I think that's something like a transliteration or a literal translation from the Hebrew. And it refers to these, uh, you know, this biblical Amalek-type uh, yeah. genocidal thing. I saw this video, by the way. I don't know if you saw it. I could try to find it. But you saw the video where they were shooting sheep in Gaza with snipers? Yeah. You saw that and video? Then, and then they, they shot horses the other day also, which is really very strange, the things that they do. I mean, um, then, it, Mm-hmm. And go the ahead. New York Times had, uh, I would uh, ask people to go to the New York Times uh, website and see an article or a study they did about soldiers boasting about uh, torturing uh, people or arresting people or blowing up hospitals, plow- blowing up buildings. And, you know, you should see the the clean language used by New York Times to describe uh, these videos. And imagine if it was done by Hamas, how they would be using uh, language like Adam was explaining um, last week, how language is used in order to portray one group in a negative way and the other in a very positive uh, way, Ahmed. But really, I think people should be studying um, uh, our media coverage and how they sometimes are biased by simply omission or by using certain words and language when it comes to one group of people uh, and the uh, other. Uh, I'm not sure if you're looking for uh, that video or not, but uh, with this idea and controversy with uh, Tucker Carlson going to the Soviet, uh, to, to Russia and interviewing Putin, and how he's talking about the right of the public and the viewers to know two sides of the story, to know mm. and listen to the other people. And I'm wondering, can he say that about the Palestinians? Can he say that about, uh, uh, you know, Hamas? Can we listen to them and see what on earth is on their mind or this is uh, considered uh, taboo so it's unbelievable so I, I, the bias yeah this is what i was actually looking for we remember that um by uh, netanyahu had invoked this uh amalek amalek uh, verses and um this is what i thought of when i saw the sheep uh getting um killed i looked up uh the you know, the verse, we're going back to this Amalek verse um, in the Bible. And this is what it says. Now, go attack the Amaleks and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Sheep is specifically there in the verse. And this is what they're doing. They're actually going literally killing the sheep, killing the donkeys, killing their animals, children, and basically everything that's alive. These people that are carrying this out, they're following it. When we say that, this is not being anti-Semitic. This is, these are their words. 
and these are their actions. Has yeah, nothing they can to go do... to New York Times article and they link to these uh, stories when they right. say, like they, they invoke these verses when they are bombing. Repeatedly. And... He said, these are the Amaleks, the people of Gaza. Mm. Now go destroy them before they destroy you. And you look at the biblical verse. This is in uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 3. Now go attack and other, you know, uh, variations, other verses say, you know, a slaughter, others say uh, smite, destroy everything, everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants. We've seen so many infants that are getting killed in this, what's happening in Gaza, and you're wondering why. They're following these verses. These people, the people that are carrying this out. And that's not to say uh, Jewish people, because that would be a disgrace this is not how Judaism and the great people, followers of Judaism act. This is a specific group. This is a political group that's carrying this out, and they're being genocidal. If you have a problem with that, go look at the definition. Go look at the verses. Go look at, you know, and, and read their words, hear their words, and see their actions. And you can't be on their side. You can't say, see everything that's happening and just ignore and look the other way and say, oh, well, you're criticizing, you know, no, we're criticizing genocidal behavior and genocidal words. And the International Court of Justice has ruled that uh, Israel is, and the, and the actual word is, there's plausible cause or plausible reason or that Israel is plausibly committing genocide in Gaza and they ordered them to stop. They're going to have their final ruling probably years from now, but this was the interim uh, decision. The evidence is there. The world is watching. And we can't see what's happening. Just ignore it. The sad part is that Biden and this administration is standing by and providing cover to what's happening there. Summer, we're wrapping up. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share or say? Uh, no, uh, no, Ahmed. Uh, it's wonderful to be doing the show with you as usual. Um, so, well, um, this is, um, again, a true talk on uh, on WMNF. Uh, the news is going to be coming up next. We have about another actual 90 seconds um, uh, to discuss. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope a truce is happening. A truce does, a ceasefire does take place because just the images that we see coming out of there are just so sad and horrific, especially the children um, and, and the parents and so many people. How do you recover? Some hundred thousand people have now been uh, injured or killed, some 30,000. And that's not even counting the thousands that are still under the rubble. And they're starving. The people there are starving. You know, the last thing that I wanted to just mention is it's just horrific to see that people are starving there and then you have uh, more genocidal people they're calling them protesters that are blocking aid trucks that are supposed to go in mm -hmm. to provide food to hungry people and and one of the reasons to say because the captives are there well if you're starving the whole Gaza and the captives are also there guess what you're going to starve the captives as well the hostages that are being kept there they need to also eat so if you want them to be safe you would be for supporting it uh, going in. So that's, we're out of time. NPR News or our news is coming up next after this. Have a great uh, weekend. Have a great day. WMNF Tampa.